0: simpson was appointed the environment commissioner of the greater sydney commission in 2015 and prior to this he was the director of the urban design and master of urbanism programs at the university of sydney ed Blakely is a former washington insider an internationally recognized leader in urban development and planning advisor and author
1: rod simpson it's been a while mate it has indeed ed You have been doing all kinds of great things, but I haven't seen you in about three years. Give me a summary of what you're up to these days.
0: Well, Ed, you know, we were both on the commission together, uh, the Greater Sydney Commission, and uh, I left there about a year ago. And um, I'm now chairing a design advisory panel on one of the local government areas in Sydney. Uh, But also just spending quite a bit of time, I have to say, on writing submissions and uh, going back to what we tried to express in our our planning um, to look at some of the principles that we had in there where a lot of them have come to pass. You know, we we started to talk about resilience being an important factor in the planning. And obviously that's become front and centre of a lot of thinking uh, since we started writing about it, about, you know, whatever it was four or five years ago. Um, So quite a bit of time on advocacy. And the other thing I'm involved with is a grassroots democracy organization called Voices of North Sydney, which is uh, the federal electorate of North Sydney in Australia. So that's around about um, 110,000 voters to give you an idea of the scale. That's got four local government areas uh, as part of that, just in terms of the geography. And that's what we're really interested there is um, how do we improve the democratic processes and participation And that's really is a response to, I think you'd have to say, the stalemate at the federal level when dealing with climate change, dealing with integrity in political processes. And it's fair to say that a lot of people are pretty disappointed with our politicians and not being represented. And so there's a bit of a a groundswell, I'd have to say, across Australia that's uh, of people just getting together and organising these movements, a lot of them, called Voices of, Voices of McKellar or Voices of Bradfield and so on. Um, so that's, that's the other thing that's been taking quite a bit of my time. So a bit of a, a difference, yeah. Well,
1: yeah, you're doing this uh, pro bono, as we'd say in law. Uh, but there's something really important I want to talk to you about because in the next several weeks, I want to focus on this notion of precincts places and place building. Uh, there is still a pension here in Australia, dare say around the world, to throw up houses across acreage at X density and say it's done. They're not connected to anything. They don't work as a system. And I wanna talk to you about how has COVID influenced the things we were trying to do to bring about real placemaking? Is COVID a generator of rethinking place because you have constraints, or people just saying we'd like to get back to where it was?
0: Yeah, well, that's a really good question, isn't it? Because uh, I think there's a real question there when we talk about. Uh, resilience and the idea of any system, you know, suffering some shocks and then how well it responds and how well it recovers and the question then is that does it shift to a different state, a new equilibrium or a new state of operation, at least, or does it return back to its original state. Um, And I think there's a real challenge there. um, Because do we as you've said do we actually look at the patterns that have emerged during COVID so much more local activity uh much greater use of open space a lot of people have talked about that but if you look at the geography of the city you know if we're looking at metropolitan Sydney we're talking around about 4.6 million people um and it has pretty much one big center and we can think about that, but we can also think about where are where are all the people who do the construction? You know, where are all the people who are the key workers? Where do they live? And what you start to see is that even though we think of it as being a polycentric city with lots of major centres distributed around and pretty well laid out in terms of those centres being on major rail and so forth, but there's still a big pattern in terms of the overall city, you know, where you've got. Then patches of people who have to travel a long way, and it really introduces, I think, then the question of, you know, a fractal pattern, you know, where you've got a little bit of everything distributed through the city. So there's a bit of economic economic activity, a bit of higher education, uh, some manufacturing. So that's sort of uh, mixed up the mixity, as the French would say, mixité, <laughs> you know, where where you actually. You know you still have, might have a big center and uh, in our in our time and I can say that Ed in our time because uh, before we joined the commission you know you were involved with Parramatta and for many years for those of you who, don't, who may not know Sydney there's a another major center which is was in fact going to be the center of Sydney back in the times of the first uh, colony uh, but for many years it's been talked about as the second center but actually it's only in the last um, 10 to 15 years, in fact, in the last 10 years really, and for that matter, even the last five years that it has really started to take off in terms of not just density, but the location of universities and government departments and so forth, and has really become truly urban. Um, but if we then extend that to other centers, you know, it's a, that's a real challenge. And so I guess the answer to your question or response to your question is, If we can see the patterns that are emerging as a result of COVID, can we harness that and reinforce the patterns that we think are desirable that have started to happen, which are largely people organizing their lives differently. Let's put it that way. Yes. Because people have been subject to COVID, they have configured their lives so that they're working from home more obviously They might be in lockdown, which is not desirable necessarily. You know, it's really tough on people who are now homeschooling as well. But if you take out those elements that aren't so good and think about how you might accommodate them. So kids go back to school, more distributed childcare centres, whatever. um, And then think of the benefits of not having to commute to office jobs so much then we might be able to imagine quite a different configuration of the city and a configuration of people's patterns of living. And that's, that's, um, that's a real challenge, you know, to capture that dynamic. In other words, the resilience of the city is also not just a matter of being able to return to its original state, but to be able to adapt and recognize that that had weaknesses. You know, that it, it, we had real weaknesses in Sydney where, as you might expect, people who are involved with construction are probably the lower end of the, you know, the pay scale. Um, those, those communities also tend to be the ones that um, sometimes aren't the healthiest and sometimes have high populations who don't speak English so therefore the vaccination campaigns wasn't configured well enough to actually help those people get vaccinated early enough and then suddenly what have you got well you've got the entire construction industry compromised because of the geography of the city and that lack of the economic the
1: social economic geography the social because economic these places are well connected they are all connected are trains and so on, but when it gets to the, the, the main street,
0: they're awful. Yeah, well, that's that's um, you know that again goes to how we've allowed that to emerge. Where you know, I think it's fair to say we've thought of food and uh, main streets as simply being um, a redundant form of outlet, if you like. They're not social spaces. There's some. If you think of it simply as somewhere to buy stuff, then of course supermarkets and Really big box retail and so forth in industrial areas is, if you like, that maybe more efficient or more functional or more profitable, let's be honest, way of organizing. Things. But it's destructive. But, but it's extremely destructive, extremely car dependent. And so, what's also emerged in COVID, of course, is that people actually love their local places and shops. And in fact, while the city of Sydney, was really in severe decline you know all the coffee shops are suffering shut down restaurants going out of business in a lot of the smaller centers as soon as people were able to get out of lockdown or actually you know get out and at least buy a cup of coffee even if they couldn't go in they were going gangbusters so a lot of little businesses in the outer suburbs that might have been just ticking along actually had an improvement a significant improvement So is that telling us something? That's that's exactly it. It's telling us something. It's showing that there's something else possible. You know, there's some conditions underneath that we could cultivate is really the question. You know, can we can we pick up on those patterns and then ease them along? Closing down car lanes so that people could cycle and not, you know, travel on public transport. And that's I think what we mean by an adaptive city. You know, imagine then consciously thinking of the city how do we reconfigure the city where yes we might have to lock down a suburb that's right and that's you know that's, that's a fundamental principle of resilience modularity you can cut down shut down well, Almost one like a ship right and the risk exactly exactly take a torpedo in one place lock it off and the ship keeps moving I wasn't going to use the Titanic uh, metaphor <laughs> Ed, Ed, but you go but, right ahead but, but we're not <laughs> in the Titanic uh, uh, we can come out of this
1: but My model of coming out of this is those little towns that I was working on as a commission, like Maryland's. Yeah. We came up with a plan for Maryland's. uh, And it's becoming a great little shopping area. Yeah, yeah. Nice little community. People can work there and live there.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And we can say that for uh, Bankstown. The center of bank sounds lovely.
0: Yeah, I You think, and I worked
1: on it, remember? We worked with the uh, mayor and
0: member of the indeed. council we to did try indeed. to shape,
1: and some of the other little uh, uh, sub-satellite communities, we came up with plans for those. Wouldn't it make more sense to spend our time with that rather than, the, well, I shouldn't say rather than, in
0: addition to uh, the large center? approach. I think well, I agree with you, Ed, as you know, but uh, I think that we need to recognize that it's in, you know, there's always winners and losers in any situation. That's right. And there's always going to be advocates for, you know, let's say the, the vested interests and the vested interests in the major city are going to be the big property trusts and so forth that have all those office buildings and are really pushing for a return to the previous pattern for obvious reasons. And so you think, well, look, maybe but that's not the whole story can we actually look at it and see if the city would actually work better uh if we had more residential in the city of sydney itself and then yes. allow you know really you know and people then say oh well it's not a zero-sum game you know it doesn't have to be one or the other but the fact of the matter is well to a certain extent it is you know if there's only a certain number of jobs and if they're not there they're somewhere else <laughs> so you know you where you want think of the, to go, the, the person
1: you know. who's the other side of Parramatta and comes to the city for work, they're spending a quarter of their income in transport. Yeah. 50% of their income on housing, that's 75%. There's only 25% left. By the time they go to a movies and have a Big Mac and so forth, they're done. Now, if you move that job closer, as Parramatta is doing, the same job, now I'm 15 minutes from work. I may not even need the train or the metro. I might go on a bike. All of a sudden, my household income is increased.
0: That's right. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that when we look at the when we look at the big centers and we talk about agglomeration and we talk about spillover, spillover effects and so forth. I mean, there's plenty of discussion about that, about the benefits of people talking to one another, the happenstance encounters and so forth. And that's all, that's all good. Um, but when you get to 4.6 million, just the distances involved, you've really got to start cultivating that polycentricity, those many centers. And I think that, um, you know, when, look, We've known each other, what, 16 years or something, 17 years, Ed, uh, going back to the 2005 Metropolitan Strategy. um, You may recall that uh, prior to that, there were about 23, 24 strategic centres, as they were called, which were essentially the big shopping malls and 100,000 square metres of retail. And and they're all on major rail lines, with the exception of uh, one or two. So there's a pretty good structure in Sydney. But... What happened then was when you might recall, we started to look at the modeling of when people, how people would travel to pr- primarily knowledge jobs, you know, office jobs. That's right. It was then we determined, well, actually, we really need to reduce the number for those higher end jobs, as they were referred to, to four or five centers. And that was that was what made sense back then. Um,
1: and so, what so sense now.
0: Well, this is the thing, you see, I think there's a possibility of going back and looking again at those 20 centres or 25 centres. In fact, you might recall that when we mapped all the centres, we were up to around about 1,200 centres, you know, right down to the little neighbourhood centres. And I think think the little neighbourhood centres are particularly interesting um, because as we densify... know i think it's fair to say there's always been this concentration on travel and transport and you know transit oriented development and we want to have higher density near transit to support the transit so people buy the tickets okay well that's all well and good but what i'm interested in what i was really working hard on in the commission was what we what we started to call parkland oriented development or other people have called it uh green space oriented development god yeah Um, (laughs) So I love it. And the thing was, you think, well, really, you can provide now when we think about transport, you know, a a, an electric bus can go pretty much anywhere. So you can create a bus line just about anywhere you like, as long as you've got a reasonably connected grid of streets. And I don't mean every street, but, you know, some connectors majors, then then really. What's, what's wrong with having density right next to the park rather than next to the freeway or next to the, the main rail? And so, you know, they, and this is really, I think, the, the potential um, as a result of COVID to look at that, where you think, hang on a second, we've got a school, let's open up the gates, that's open space, there's a community hub. Right. Let's, let's allow a wine bar, for goodness sake. The world's not going to end, you know. Opposite the school gates, <laughs> you know, some cafes or whatever, um, and let's put some density around the local park, which happens to be where next to the school. And that I don't think's happened. You know, it's been very much focused on. Oh, look, we're just going to put the density right near the, the train stop. And the thing about that is that that's not necessarily where the highest amenity is. So. I think the other thing that, you know, I'm particularly interested in is there's a road network which tends to follow the ridges, you know, for obvious reasons. So the historical road pattern has been one or established by progressive expansion of the city in Australia. So we've moved out and you build the road, you know, where it makes sense, where it's not going to wash away. That's fine. But that doesn't mean that we have to follow that pattern when we're doing new areas. No, we don't. So what you can do is you've got this complementary network, which is the the waterways network, the waterways network, and then the vegetation network, the corridors of green. Uh, And we're not going to be changing the whole topography of the entire city. So we're not going to be changing where the watercourses go, actually. So that's the framework. The framework in the West, um, when we were at the Commission, Ed, you know, that's what we were really looking at how do we start with we turn we turn the sequence on its head instead of going where's the major transport where's the highest density where's the next level of density oh then there's some low density oh and there's some parkland and waterways off there down the bottom of the valley turn it on its head start with the water start with thinking about the water then the green space and then where's the high density housing to take advantage of that green network yeah. if you make yeah. amenity the principle you have yeah.
1: less decaying places that's that's exactly it the, and that if is. you have mixed density like pasadena california where there's apartments on every block but they keep keeping the style of the block
0: yep yeah. yep yeah. and uh, the other thing though in every is-
1: place has green space A Pasadena is not meant for cars, except for Colorado Boulevard. Yeah. yeah. You're not allowed to park overnight in Pasadena. Any vehicle he has has to be off the street and not on your lawn. So people have fewer vehicles and they ride the transit more.
0: Well, that's it. I think, and the transit, I think, is going to change too, Ed. You know, that's those electric buses and there's a capacity of buses that can actually perform that sort of transit. Uh, Function, but the other thing that you when I when I say this, you know, when you look at our policies, which have actually put the highest density along some of the major roads, so it's actually putting the highest density in the areas of least amenity, convenient and that's healthily that's bad for public health. It's bad. Well, it's just just not they're just not great places to live, you know. And so, I think COVID. Going back to the original question, you know. COVID has shown that people really do love their open space. I mean, you've seen it. Like, I, I've never seen in my whole life, obviously, living in pretty much the same area my whole life, I've never seen so many people out recreating, enjoying the bush, enjoying the open space. And so I you can look across the street there. right
1: now. The oval's over there.
0: Yeah. And I used to look over there. There'd be nobody. Exactly. Now it's yeah. full. So... I think that's a challenge and I guess I guess there, um, it's a question then of who's going to pick up on those patterns and cultivate them. And this is, I suppose, almost a link to the other activity that I'm involved with, which is the idea of how do we get more participation in our planning and in our local politics? How do we actually engage people in- the
1: Participation. A-
0: isn't just standing up and saying no. That's exactly (laughs) right.
1: Participation is more like you saw in the States where community members come together saying, how they want their community to be in the future and working with developers and the planners to create it rather than just saying no to everything that comes along. And then you get the worst things because the people who can afford to go to court win.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's um. I mean, as the little bit of time I've spent in the states with you, actually, Ed, you know, it's um. You you do pick that up that it's uh. There's a different ethos, and the ethos comes from, of course, a you know quite different history, and the different history, of course, means that there's different um, taxation systems, there's different institutional arrangements, and it's sort of the invisible systems. And we're just saying before we started recording, you know. Our old colleague, John Mant, who's passed uh, fairly recently, always talked about the designing of the invisible systems as well as the physical,
1: that's visible powerful.
0: systems. And that's 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 part and parcel of it. So that, you know, with, with COVID, uh, again, going back to that, um, it really raises the question of uh, how do we self-organize? How do we actually develop that capacity, the social capacity locally, um, and not just expect uh, it, everything to be provided is the is the real question. Right. So um, one would think, with COVID being what it is, and the planners locked up and
1: on Zoom, they would start kind of a social movement in the communities they're in. You know, having COVID town uh, town hall saying COVID's on. What are some of the things we'd like to have when we come out of it? Because that's going on in the states right now. People are doing these things. It was on Zoom, and now it's small meetings and so on. Because when all this money comes from Biden, they want to know how they want it spent. Mm. They're not waiting for a developer to come in and say, I'm going to put a building
0: here. Yeah,
1: They'll yeah. even select the developer to come in and put the building they want. That's what we need to be doing.
0: Yeah, I think... I think um... Again, that might be a different approach because, uh, you know, for those of you who might be listening not in Australia, you know, one of the controversies at the moment is just where a lot of the COVID money has gone. And I think what's been amazing uh, actually as a result of COVID, um, something we've seen a little bit uh, back when there was the global financial crisis, as we call it in Australia, which was, um, the ability of fiat currencies to be issued to actually, right. you know, pump money into the economy, which of course then a, became became a major strategy in Australia. But then the question is, where do you send it? Which is of course one of you know the principle of modern monetary theory. It's okay to print money if you're going to put it into the economy and it's not inflationary. And so that's where basically you're going to be put it in the part of the economy where there's sufficient demand not to create inflationary pressures. So that means you can use it to do a whole lot of things. And I'm not sure that we've actually done that in Australia particularly well. You know, it's been given to companies that don't really need the money sometimes. <laughs> this is the controversy at the moment. But, um, you know, the Institute that's of... that's our... because we don't have an idea. Well, the funding. A well, system, but not an idea. Well, that's true, Ed. But I think you know there was, there's some ideology there we just can't uh, ignore. Um, so the you know the Institute of Architects and the Planning Institute, in together with uh, community housing providers, uh, put propositions to the Commonwealth Government saying this is a great opportunity to upgrade social housing to actually Absolutely. build to build affordable housing, uh, recognizing that affordability is. Well, out of, well, lack of affordability is out of control because of uh, the way our taxation has just sort of allowed things to go. And then the drop in interest rates means that it's actually just pumped it up even further. And so the idea was that you'd be solving two problems at once. You're putting money into the economy, into construction where it can absorb it without being inflationary. And at the same time, essentially, not just repairing something or just pump priming consumption or whatever, but actually building a legacy of affordable housing stock. And so that's, that's, I think a really, if it had happened, (laughs) but that's an investment in the future. Exactly. And it's sort of doing, it's doing two things at once. On the one hand, it's, it's actually addressing the current problem in terms of actually stimulating the economy, but in a way that actually has a legacy. And so, uh, I think it's fair to say we were pretty disappointed when that wasn't taken up um, and there was just money given to people who wanted to do home re- renovations or put in a swimming pool or whatever, you know, um, so not particularly well directed. Um, but again, you know, this is the thing. I think it's, you know, that, that classic line of taking advantage of a crisis uh, because... And I think, you know, one of the things you were going to touch on, Ed, was what do we do with with climate? And of course, dealing with the climate crisis, um, I think it's going to be interesting, the lessons that we can draw from COVID. There's been a lot of discussion about politicians listening to experts, listening to evidence, taking that into account. That's right. The sort of of thing you'd expect them to do all the time, but doesn't seem to happen. So, of course, then when we start to then confront um, what we're going to do with climate change, again, you look at some of the... um, precedents actually that have been established with covid Uh, and i'll use the example of pfizer as i understand it you know pfizer invested 500 million dollars us on setting up the factories ready to produce the vaccine that they didn't know that they didn't (laughs) didn't, have they didn't even have it they didn't know which one it was going to be but again this question of resilience having the 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 redundancy in the system to actually essentially over design it a little bit so that it can actually adapt to whatever happens um these principles um i think cut through so much of our thinking so you know i know the conversations about what can we think of in urban planning um in relation to COVID. what are the what what do we learn from COVID in or what can we take advantage of but i think there's this bigger if you like bigger conceptual framework that's actually opened up to us, not just evidence-based, but Mm -hmm. how resilience thinking, you know, actually investing in overcapacity, having a bit of flexibility, uh, putting in place the learning systems as opposed to let's sweat the assets and get the absolute maximum efficiency out of something. Let's, let's design it to within an inch of its life because yes, that look, that's a false economy actually. Because, with that comes brittleness and vulnerability, that's and right. not safe to fail. So you know, I think I think we're entering into a and a I think really we have to area. start thinking about not just designing Sydney, but designing all
1: the places around Sydney, the Newcastle's, Wollongongs, and a system of cities, not a city.
0: Yeah, well that's right. And like I think- RPA in New York, it's a system of cities. It is. I mean, I think, I think that's always been the dream, Ed, in Australia. I think that, again, it's always really, um, it's always difficult or I think we need to treat precedents with some degree of caution. And what I would say, when you look at the network of um, interior cities in the US or if you look at the network of peripheral cities around London or, for that matter, around Paris, I mean, when I say cities, they may not be very big, but there's a there's a very dense network of hinterland. And of course, in Sydney, we're both blessed and cursed, I suppose, by the fact that we've got very rugged national parks <laughs> to the north, to the west, and to the south, and of course the ocean to the east. And so it's it's fairly constrained that way. But in terms of the economic geography, it means that it really is a hop, skip, and a jump, as opposed to a continuous linkage to these other cities. Like but New but we can
1: Island. overcome those with rapid yeah.
0: rail. We
1: can dig tunnels through the mountains, open sure. up places like Orange. It's not that hard, but we don't have a plan to do that.
0: No, we don't. But I guess what, Ed, what I'm suggesting, though, is that, um, yes, there will be interconnections, but I'd almost go to the next step, I suppose, and say that, Newcastle's around about, I think, six hundred thousand people now, right? Closer to a hundred thousand. Newcastle. Yeah, metropolitan name, Newcastle. Oh yeah, the centre of Newcastle. But if you look at the lower Hunter, we're talking around about six hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an it's big enough to have all the things you'd expect in a metropolis, basically. Absolutely. You know, like it's not a small. Absolutely. It's, it's a, not a dependent place. No, it's right. So, it's, so the the count the, the counter strategy or a, an alternative strategy would be to say, you know, what do we need to invest in Newcastle to really make it go off and have its own yes. identity and to connect think, it up with the other places exactly. of similar size. And as you, as you might recall, Ed, I'm sure we had this conversation. You know, when people talk about high speed rail you know the inclination is so we've got to join sydney to melbourne and then sydney to brisbane but in Just fact
1: faster good trains will do it
0: yeah and but the real strategy for fast rail that's proven more successful in europe is to first of all extend your primary city so it's much more important to go sydney to newcastle right sydney sydney to wollongong than it is to try and go oh no look it's all about brisbane to bring, exactly, so you actually start to build a network. It doesn't all have to be done at once, but no. you ex- you extend it for the immediate uh, hinterland, if you like, or the related urban centres. And that, at Sydney to the new airport, uh,
1: and from the airport through the mountains out to Orange and Bathurst would go. Yeah, yeah, that extend the system. All right, I think we've pounded this to death okay it's just like when the old days were at the university and <laughs> before the greater Sydney commission back when the department making a That's metropolitan it. plan let's hope yeah. somebody turns to us and we'll call it
0: the john matt plan okay okay sounds good to me he deserves to have a couple of uh, suburbs named after him i reckon so i think so <laughs> or more or more Take care, mate. okay great to talk ed For more of these chats with leading experts in their fields, look for Pacific Conversations wherever you find good podcasts, or check out the website, edtalks.com.au. For weekly US news and current affairs, check out Ed and I's other podcast, US of Ed, also wherever you find good podcasts, as well as on Facebook and Twitter.